0: We're doing this series out of Mark called Getting to Know Jesus, and we're really just trying to look at the person of Jesus and see who He was, and uh, what He valued, and how He ministered, so that we can get to know Him better. And uh, I'm kind of coming towards the end of my contribution. I think um, in December we're going to have a number of other people preaching, and just uh, hearing from other voices as well. But uh, I'd like to read to you this morning out of Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the second half of uh, the chapter and the first six verses of chapter 3. And I'd like to speak to you this morning about grace in the kingdom of God. Grace in the kingdom of God. And there are three pictures here that we have of um, that Jesus kind of uses to illustrate a whole new thing that he's doing in the kingdom. And I said to you last week... That uh, the way that Jesus ministered forgiveness to people was demonstrating a whole new attitude that He wanted people to see, that God was not angry, that God God, God was smiling on people, that God's heart towards us is open, and He wants people to come into this new kingdom that um, He was demonstrating through His life. And so we're going to read about that about uh, again this morning. And uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 says... No one sews a piece of unstruck, uh, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to those that were with him, how he entered the house of God... Oh, sorry, I missed the line. Uh, And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God... "...in the time of Abathah the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said this to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath." And he has the third example. "...again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a the withered hand." And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Uh, another demonstration of this rising opposition to Jesus, his life and his ministry. And uh, Jesus, as we know, we looked at last week, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He, what they objected to most, the Pharisees, that Jesus hung out with people that no one else wanted to hang out with, and he loved people that other people hated. That's what they objected to. And here again, the religious people are in opposition to what Jesus is doing. Aren't you, aren't you glad that we, lo- we, are, we, are, we love a Savior who loves the unlovely? We love a Savior who loves the broken and the lost, and those that know that they're, without him they are desperate and, and uh, have no hope or future. Why do I say that? Because I want to say to you, without Jesus, that that would be my life. There would be no hope. There would be no future. He gives us a new hope and a new future. And that's why we love Him. He's a Savior full of grace and mercy. And mercy always triumphs over judgment, doesn't it? Aren't you glad about that? This is the gospel, that mercy always triumphs over judgment. And so I'd like to discipline myself this morning (laughs) to take those three examples and just say one thing out of those three examples to illustrate what I'm saying. Saying And here it is, this growing hostility to the person and work of Jesus. So the first challenge is, why don't your disciples fast? The second challenge is, as they're just having a stroll on a Sunday, they're picking grains of wheat. I I, I remember growing up in Africa as a... as a young boy, where the grass is quite tall. We often used to go for a walk, and the most automatic thing to do when you're walking through the bush is to pick grass and to chew the end of it. Any of you know what I'm talking about? That's what we did as kids. And this is what the Pharisees are angry with Jesus' disciples for. They're going for a stroll on a Sunday, on the Sabbath. And as they're going, they just pick some grains of wheat and begin to chew on them, and they are very upset. And this is the second thing I'd like to look at. And thirdly, this illustration of Jesus' healing the man with a withered hand. So a good question to ask is, did this happen chronologically? Um, well, Mark, up until, until this point, really has done things in chronological order, so it's quite possible that these three things did happen in chronological order. Um, and I think it's likely because, like I said, Mark is describing this ri- rising opposition towards Jesus, and it's likely that they did happen closely to each other, and he describes them as they happened. So the first thing I'd like to say, and I have three little things uh, to say to you. The first is this, that Jesus and his ministry was a completely new thing in the kingdom of God. It was completely a new thing. And this kind of becomes more and more clear as we look at this issue of fasting, because um, it becomes obvious that Jesus has a different view about fasting than the Pharisees and also John's disciples, John the Baptizer and his disciples. For Jesus, fasting was a good thing. And I want to say that up front. Fasting was a good thing. He he, he commends fasting in the Gospels. But it wasn't a rigid law. okay? And that's the difference for Jesus. And so if you look at Matthew 6.16, this is what Jesus says about fasting. He says, When you fast... So Jesus is presuming that we should fast sometimes, all right? When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus commands fasting as a, as a discipline, but he's, he's kind of talking about the attitude with which we fast. And so the disciples of John had this routine of fasting. Uh, the, the Pharisees, and I want to point out this, remind you of this, the Pharisees, most of them were unsaved, all right? They were religious unsaved people. Most of them had a routine of fasting. And this leads to a question where they come and it, it says some people came Uh, to ask Jesus this question. So it might have been those that were influenced by the Pharisees' teaching, like a group of uh, kind of disciples. They come and say, well, why why do you guys do this? You know, we all fast. Why don't you fast? And I was reading this week, you know, there was only one day in the Old Testament that was required to fast. Only one day that Jews were required to fast in one year. And that was the Day of Atonement, when they would fast as a nation, that would come before God, they would ask for forgiveness of sins, and they were forgiven their sins. One day in the year, they were required to fast. But the stricter Jews, and remember I talked to you about the Pharisees who collected the oral tradition of, of, of the, the Jewish people, and they wrote it down in, in the Torah and the Mishnah, they had a much more strict practice of fasting, and so they required people to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. You fast from sunrise to sunset. You don't eat anything on those two days, but you could eat as normal after sundown. And so this was the, the practice of stricter religious Jews. And so I want to say there are some good reasons that we could fast. And I want to commend fasting to you as a discipline. Um, I think a good reason is to fast so that we don't, things don't control us. Yeah? Uh, if food is controlling you, it's good to not eat sometimes. Uh, and it's, if, if television is controlling you, it's good to not watch sometimes. Yeah? It's a, it's a good discipline. Just to, sh- just to say, that thing is not going to control me. I, I'm going to have control over that. Um, it's a good thing to fast to learn to appreciate things more. Uh, I didn't, I didn't um, purposefully... Uh, I just appreciated my house when I stayed in Romania for a couple of days. <laughs> When you fast from what you have, just through circumstance or in a different, you appreciate much more what you have, isn't it? You see how other people live and then you appreciate. We, in, in, we saw um, they, they uh, have their garbage uh, recycling plants fenced off. First of all, they fenced them off because uh, that part of Transylvania has the, <coughs> the highest um, concentration of brown bears in the whole of Europe. And so that's why they used to fast off these recycling plants. But the Romani people who are desperately poor, and we saw families living in the garbage, living in the garbage, fed, going through the garbage to get food. We, these are Romani people. Man, I appreciated what I have. I said, thank you, God, for your blessing in my life. Amen? So fasting can be a good thing. But what Jesus is saying, the problem with the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees, he's saying your fasting is a show. And that's what's the heart of the problem, isn't it? It was a display for others to see, and in fact, they were trying to get other people's attention, and they were trying to get God's attention and, say, and kind of demonstrate and say, God, look how pious we are. Look how spiritual we are. We, we fast twice a week. And God, don't you see that? They were kind of get, trying to get God's attention. And so we know that the, the, they would whitewash their faces. They would wear old clothes to let everyone know that they were fasting. And Jesus is saying, that's what my kingdom is not about. I'm doing a new thing, and it's not about that. <laughs> and so, looking forward to your wedding in a couple of weeks' time. What does Jesus do? He, he chooses a wedding as an example of what he's trying to say. He, the first example he uses is of a wedding. I love weddings. Weddings are amazing times where people just let their hair hang down and uh, they celebrate and they hang out. Weddings are fantastic, fantastic times, aren't they? of families getting together. And so the point is that for a Jewish wedding, Richard, maybe you would like to try this as well. They didn't go on honeymoon. (laughs) You're not going to try that one. For Jewish families, they didn't go on honeymoon like we do. What they did is they had an open house for a week after the ceremony and they invited all their best friends, all their best friends into their home, and they celebrated for a week with their best friends. And part of that was that those that were part of the wedding celebration, those that were invited guests, they, under the law, were exempt from fasting. They didn't have to do anything like the other Jews did for that week. They, were, they could just hang out, have fun, eat lots of food, dance and celebrate, and they were exempt from fasting. And Jesus... He, um, in fact, yeah, this is what the rabbi said. This is for again from the, the Torah. All in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observance, which would lessen their joy. That's what they said. Anything that lessens your joy, this is a time of celebration. This is a time to hang out and have fun as a family. Anything that lessens your joy, you are exempt for that from the week. And so, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like a wedding. It's like the wedding celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. I'm doing a new thing. Can you see the new thing that I'm doing? And my disciples are actually the invited guests to the celebration. And when we hang out, we have fun. We have joy. There's joy. There's, my ministry is a, it's a celebration of joy. That is what Jesus is saying. And He's saying, yeah, there'll come a day when the bridegroom won't be here anymore, and then the church will need to fast. The church will have some things that, tough times they'll have to go through. But right now, I am the bridegroom, and I'm calling people towards myself, and we're going to celebrate with all of our hearts. And I want to say to you, for me, There must be joy in our lives. And uh, you can say, well, don't put that on me. (laughs) But it's a demonstration of the kingdom. What is the use of us walking around with a long face? Not living with a sense of joy and overcoming our circumstances. And I, I want to say this, I know that it's been a tough economic time. I know that there are people that are carrying debt. I know that there are people that have been unemployed. I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant to these things. But surely... Greater is He that is in us than He is in the world. Surely, this is the basic, basic demonstration of the kingdom that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And that the seasons of debt will move on and we will have much. And that we will, if we're not employed now, one day we will be. And this is our hope, this is our dream that we have, that Christ is greater. He is more. He is always above those things. And because of that, we can live with a smile. Carrying joy. I'm not putting anything on you. I'm just saying we know as a family what it's like this year. We know. We have known what it's like to see our our children suffer and our sons suffer. And you can do nothing about it. But we determine in our hearts we're going to live above it, Father, by your grace. And I know what it's like. So Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like a wedding. I want to encourage you to find joy that wonderful uh, C.S. Lewis book. By joy. What is it called again? Surprised by joy. This is the joy of Christianity. Find joy. And the only way we can find joy is in Christ. And then he uses another example. And I've always, I've always heard this taught in terms of leadership. I'm more, more convinced now it's got very little to do with leadership. He talks about new wine in a new wineskin. And what is he saying? He's saying that the new thing that I'm doing, the new kingdom that I'm bringing, you can't just put a patch on what is old. Like the old, the law and Moses. You can't just put a patch on it and kind of try and fix it up. Cuz actually that's not what my kingdom is. My kingdom is a new thing altogether. This is a kingdom of grace. The old is gone, and the new is come and it's completely transformational. It's completely a new thing, and you cannot just try and put it on the old system. It's a completely new system. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, if you try and put my new thing onto an old way of seeing God, you'll lose the one, and you'll lose the one skin, and everything will be destroyed. It's a new kingdom. And I want to say this. Sometimes we do require a new structure. I'm not saying we don't. Well, for Martin Luther, the time came in the Reformation where it was no longer possible to patch up the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. He had to stand and say, it's a new thing. We cannot just patch up the old. It's a new thing. We are saved by faith, by grace alone. It's a new thing. You with me? Uh, John Wesley didn't want to get kicked out of the Anglican Church. He was kicked out of the Anglican Church because of what he was preaching. He didn't want to leave. They asked him to leave. And he had to say, it's time for a new thing. I cannot just patch up the old. It's a new thing. So there are times for new things. I'm not saying that at all. That we uh, don't... Um, I'm losing my thought here, but anyway. Secondly, this thing of the new one and the new wineskin. I think Jesus is appealing to our hearts as well. He's saying, I want you to have a soft heart. I want you to have a pliable heart. You know, the things uh, I've noticed um, getting a little bit older... My body is a little bit more unyielding. I played golf with my friend, Ricardo, this week, and my back is really sore. And I never used to get sore. I used to be able to just swing the club and just go for it, and no problem. When you get a bit older, your body gets a little bit stiffer, doesn't it? It's not so easy to touch your toes. You have to do that, all this kind of stuff. And it happens sometimes with our hearts, isn't it? That as we get older, our hearts become a little bit unyielding. So the new thing that God is doing, we kind of, no, we resist it. Oh, no, I'm not so, you know, I've seen all that before. Or no, 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 just, just resist that. I'm a little bit set in my ways. I'm more comfortable with the way things are. And Jesus is appealing here and saying, if you want to enjoy the new wine, you have to have a soft heart. Yeah? Always soft, always pliable, always open. And that is the great challenge of living as a Christian. I want to say for me and for my family, one of the greatest challenges we've had leading a church is to see people come and go. People come and go. People come and go. You know why? Because you always open your heart to people. And you always want to embrace new people. And you build with them, and then they go. And some people go because of, of uh, work, and some people go because they get transferred. Some people go because they want to go to another church, and that's fine. But you know what? Over a period of time, It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And so you can harden your heart and just say, okay, God, we'll just be a little bit withdrawn because it's just, it's just too exhausting. Emotionally, you get drained all the time. Or you can choose to soften your heart and say, God, I'm going to keep myself open as hard as it is. Are you with me? Jesus wants soft hearts from all of us. And I, I believe that... Um, he wants us to accept new truth always and think about new things that he's doing, these prophetic things that he's spoken over his church. I, I read a delightful verse. You know, the great, the great um, hero of, of faith is Abraham. And I read this about Jacob this week, which I thought was amazing. In Hebrews eleven 21, I've been looking at Hebrews in my devotions. It says this, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Isn't that an amazing picture? This old man, at the end of his life, is praying blessing over those that are coming after him, and he's still got his traveler's staff. He's still got his walking stick. He's still like, God, I'm still on a journey with you, and until I die, I'm still going to be on a journey with you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God is doing a new thing. I want to encourage you to keep your heart open, always, to new things that God is doing, and not to lose... Wine that he's pouring out. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that Jesus, the new kingdom that he's brought in himself and he he brings in us, it is more gracious than it is legalistic. It's much more about mercy than it is about justice. It's much more about compassion than being right. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It's much more gracious than it is legalistic. Why do Christians always want to have the last say? Always be the one to have their voice heard? <laughs> it's the kingdom of grace. You know what grace is? Grace is restraining. Grace is withholding. Grace is saying, yeah, okay, I'll choose to hear from you. And some things that you might be right on, but you choose to hear from other people. Are you with me? And he says this. He uses an example I've mentioned already. They are out for a stroll on Sunday. And so they pick a couple of grains of corn to chew on. And the Pharisees are looking to trap Jesus. They are, they're looking for a fight. And so they accuse him of working on the Sunday. On the Sabbath, rather. They accuse him of saying, your disciples are working. It's illegal to work on a, under the law. Well, quite, if you know the Old Testament law, actually Jesus and his disciples were not even breaking the law. They were breaking the additional requirements of the scribes and the Pharisees, isn't that how legalistic people work? They take God's law and they add a whole lot of things onto it which are not even in God's word or God's law and they say you must hold to those things as well. That's how legalism works. And in fact, the Mishnah, there were 39 different requirements about what it meant to work on the Sabbath. (laughs) 39. Included reaping, sowing, winnowing, threshing, preparing a meal. All those things were seen as work. In fact, we we'll look now and see even healing someone in, Even healing someone was considered work. And uh, for us, it might seem quite amazing. It might seem fantastic to us to even think like that. But for religious Jews, it was a matter of life and death. And it was a matter of something that needed to be put right. And so Jesus doesn't even... He kind of refers to another story altogether. He doesn't really even answer their question. He refers to David, when David took the, the consecrated bread, from which only the priests were allowed to touch. And um, he kind of sidesteps the issue in some way, and he quotes from 1 Samuel 21, and he says, The Sabbath is made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, you have missed the point altogether. God made man, and he made the Sabbath that man might rest and recreate himself. That's why God gave the Sabbath, and you've made it a different thing. And I want to encourage you as we go on holiday, that you Sabbath. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this. It is good to play sport, and I love playing sport, and that recreates me on one level. It's good, uh, I was just thinking on the way here, we're talking in our car. You know, some people go shopping on Sundays, and I'm not against shopping on Sundays, and uh, it might give you an emotional kind of sense of fulfillment when you get a bargain. But it doesn't recreate you. I've, I've been around to people that's gone a long holiday, two or three weeks, and they're back at three, weeks, three, three days at work, and you speak to them and they say, I'm so tired, it's like I didn't get a holiday. Why is that? Because holidaying, Sabbathing with God is not just about resting your body. It's not just about recreating yourself and playing some sport. It's about refreshing yourself in God. And that's where you get your strength from, isn't it? One day in your house is better than a thousand elsewhere. When you are resting in God, and that's why I encourage you to be prayers. I want to encourage you to be readers. I want to encourage you to be those that are in the Word of God, because that is what refreshes you. That is what recreates you. That's what helps you Sabbath on the inside so that the inside of you is rested. And then you can come back and face some new challenges. That's what Jesus is saying. We are made for that kind of Sabbathing. That's what God has given to us as a gift that we might be refreshed, restored, encouraged. And then we go out and do the stuff. Okay, I want to say this as well. That uh, Just notice from this that Jesus never added to the law, right? Jesus fulfilled the law completely. He never added anything to the law. Beware when people add things and say you need to do that. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Wear only these clothes. That's legalism. We are free in Christ. Yeah? That's why some people don't like the gospel. Second thing I want to say is that Jesus could do as he pleased. I'm not advocating some of those things and saying they're good lifestyle choices, just for the podcast, all right? I think it's better not to smoke. I want to say absolutely it's better not to smoke, but it's between you and God whether you smoke or not. Jesus produces pleased, basically, uh, and um, he uses this phrase, like a son of man. He says he is the son of man, and uh, if you know the scripture, that is used in Daniel seven thirteen. And it says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. So Jesus uses this uh, phrase on purpose knowing that it's prophesied in Daniel that the son of man actually is a prophetic looking forward to the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And basically he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am Lord of the Sabbath. If I want to break the Sabbath I'll break it anyway. And what's it got to do with you? (laughs) That's really what he's saying on another level. And so we are free in Christ. And uh, The new kingdom is much more about grace than it is about legalism. And thirdly, and then we're going to pray and worship together. This is the third thing I think we can see from this story, these three stories. Religion is cruel, but grace is full of compassion. Religion is cruel. We went on holiday about five years ago, six years ago now, to Greece, which is also an Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox Church is very um, strong there, just like we were now in Romania, where the Orthodox Church is also strong. And uh, we went on this boat ride, boat trip around the island, and we came back, and it was a festival, an Orthodox festival, and there was some icon, uh, was it, no, was it was the body of a saint, wasn't it? There was a body of a, of a saint, preserved body, in this Greek Orthodox church. And we got off the ferry, and it was probably a mile at least from the ferry to the, um, to the church. And there were all these pilgrims crawling in the middle of summer on a tarmac, right? Crawling on their hands and knees. Uh, this is 21st century. Crawling on their hands and knees from the ferry all the way to the church where they queued on their hands and knees to go and kiss the coffin. I was angry. I was so angry. I thought, Jesus, this is not your gospel. This is not your kingdom. And yet we've, we allow this still to persist. Well, what's going to break that is the preaching of the gospel, of the freedom that we have in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to stand for For the grace of God, and that religion is cruel, but grace is full of compassion. Full, full, full. I would rather this place is full of people that are seen as sinners in the life of the church, and we have to try and help to fix up lots of messed up lives, than have everybody in this place that is religious and legalistic, and there's no life. Yeah? So he has this example about Jesus being full of compassion. I want to just say I think Jesus is quite brave even going back to the synagogue. Wouldn't you think? Because he's already got up the nose of the Pharisees. (laughs) And they're already kind of trying to get him out of the synagogue. And he's brave. He goes back into the synagogue. And uh, the Greek makes it clear that this thing of a withered hand, that the man wasn't born like that. It was obviously some sickness or something that caused his his hand to be paralyzed and to, to shrink or however it was. And uh, Jesus knows already that the Pharisees are trying to trap him, because he knows the law very well, and he knows the Mishnah, he knows the oral tradition of of, uh, the scribes as well, and I was fascinated again reading that um, this week, that why they didn't want to see people healed on a Sunday, it was because their law said it was work. It was work to heal someone, therefore you didn't heal someone on a Sunday, I mean on the Sabbath. And that was quite, again, the law was quite detailed about it. If someone's uh, life was in danger, you could give them medical attention. So, for example, if a woman was giving birth on, a, uh, on the Sabbath, you could help the woman who was giving birth on a Sabbath. If there was a life-threatening infection, like in someone's throat or body, that could be treated. If someone had broken their arm, for example... You could only pour water on the arm to help with the pain, but you couldn't put ointment or anything on to treat it because that would be doing work. Helping them to get better would be doing work. If a a wall fell on someone on the Sabbath, you could work in in that you could clear the rubble away and see if they were alive. If they were alive, you could get them out of the rubble and help them. If they were dead, you had to leave them because it was not... uh, you couldn't work on the Sabbath, you had to leave them and go back the next day and get the body. This is this is legalism. In fact, I read this, which I just was stunned with, that a strict Jew would not even defend his own life on, on the Sabbath. If someone was trying to kill a strict Jew on the Sabbath, they wouldn't defend themselves. How do we know that? Well, I mentioned Josephus before who was an amazing. Jewish historian. He talks about uh, the War of the Maccabees where the Jews were being um, attacked by the Syrians and they um, fled to some caves where they took refuge. And Josephus says that the Syrians appealed to the Jewish people and said, uh, please surrender. Uh, We don't want to take your lives. Please surrender. And they refused to surrender. So what the Syrians did is they went on the Sabbath and they burned them in the caves where they were and they did not resist. They did not even try and stop up the cave. They did nothing, because according to the law, they couldn't work on a Sunday, on a Sunday, on the Sabbath, and so they didn't even defend themselves, and they lost their lives. And so Jesus puts, um, he knows all this stuff, he knows the law, he knows the additional uh, requirements of the scribes, and so he he, he poses a question which actually he makes a very simple point. He doesn't walk away from the the fight that he he engages in in that sense, he asks the Pharisees, he says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And of course, they are trapped by their own logic, aren't they? Of course, it must be good to do good on the Sabbath. And then he says another thing. He says, is it lawful to save a life or to take a life? And again, he's driving his simple point home that the the Sabbath was never put in place to stop the gracious hand of God moving. That's what he's trying to say. It's a compassionate kingdom, a kingdom of compassionate love and grace and mercy. That's what's moving forward. And so they had no answer for him. But it's interesting; they're not willing to change either. Isn't that terrifying? They, they know they're trapped by their own logic, their own law, and yet they will not change. That's what legalism does to you. It makes your heart so hard that even when you can see the truth, you will not change. And in fact, they go out and they plot with the Rhodians to kill Jesus. And I believe Mark 3, 6 is actually where the point that Jesus has been trying to get us to where this plot is, is put in place for the Pharisees to kill Jesus. The interesting thing about the Herodonians is that they had nothing to do with the religious tradition of, of, the, of, of the Jews. They, they were supporters of the Roman government. They were politicians. They had, there was no reason for the scribes and the Pharisees to, to, they had nothing in common with them. Except this, that they hated Jesus and they wanted him out of the way. So they got the politicians involved to see how they could kill him. Full of hatred, full of Murder in their hearts. This is what legalism does. This is what religion does. Makes people blind, foolish, murderous, full of hatred, unable to forgive. But the grace of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus brought, is full of mercy, full of peace, it's compassionate. Let this church be full of those things. It's impossible for us to do that by trying hard. What is possible is that the Holy Spirit can fill us to overflowing and it's the overflow of our hearts because we love Jesus. So let us be those that are full of these things. Jesus, the new kingdom that he brought did change everything. It was a kingdom full of joy, full of righteousness, full of peace and God wants to pour out new wine on all of us. Let us have soft hearts that can receive the fullness of the new wine that Jesus pouring out upon us. And can I ask you again, can I appeal to you again, let us be those that are free and happy to extend grace to everyone. Same grace that we've received from Christ. We extend that same grace to everybody else. Is that easy? No. Is it possible? Yes. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. And so much of our unforgiveness is because we just want to be vindicated. We just want to be proved right, that our point of view is the right one, that we have been hurt, that everyone's misunderstood us, that it's not fair. Yeah? But grace says, Jesus, I'm trusting you for these things. And I'll put my faith in what you've done for me, that in the right time, all things will become I want to say this the, last, the lesson, the, if anything I've learned in the last five things, the last five years, over time, things become clear. What is in darkness comes out. Just have to wait and let God do what He does. And vindication comes, and truth is exalted. So shall we break bread? And I want to ask you this morning, if you're visiting, you're welcome to break bread with us. I want to ask you as we break bread that you'd find joy for your life. That you find mercy for your life. That you'd find grace for your life. I can point you to where I think you can find mercy and grace and joy. But you have to come to Jesus yourself. And so the scripture says if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths... He is righteous and he forgives all our sin. And that is sure and that is certain. And once it's done, it's done. And we never go back to our sin like a dog going back to its vomit. We never go back, never go back. You don't revisit it anymore. It's done, it's dusted, it's gone. You are a new creation. You're a new person in Christ. But what we do is when we break bread, we're saying to ourselves, we're reminding ourselves, Jesus, apart from you, I have nothing. And so I put all my eggs in the gospel basket. I put all my trust in your blood and your body. It was broken for me. It was poured out for me. And I'm grateful. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to your table this morning. We come as your sons and daughters. We, we come as those that have experienced your grace and your mercy poured out in our lives. And we ask you this morning that as we do this every week, once again, we just remind ourselves of your goodness and your kindness. We remind ourselves of your forgiveness. We remind ourselves, Lord, that we too, have the potential to be those that are incredibly condemning, legalistic, and putting stuff on other people unless the grace of God is transforming our own hearts. And so we ask that you'd come by the power of your Spirit. We ask that you'd transform us from the inside out. that We might be those that are full of joy and full of compassion and full of mercy, and that we extend that to our friends and our family and to those that we love. The same mercy that we've received, that we give it away to everyone that we meet. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.